Uh, I'm currently at Silverstone, which is uh, not normally where you'd find me. You can probably hear a lot of background noise there. Uh, there are uh, motorbikes going round and round. I call them motorbikes. Probably other people call them someone else, but I, I was never allowed to ride one of those because my uh, my granddad used to have a motorbike, and uh, then he lost an eye. Uh, they were connected, by the way. They weren't separate issues that he had a motorbike. And it was on the motorbike that he lost his eye, um, or as he came off the motorbike, somewhere near the motorbike, he lost his eye. That's not what we're here to talk about, though, my uh, family stories. Uh, what we are here to do uh, at the uh, British MotoGP 2021 uh, is talk to Randy Mamola and Andrea Coleman of Two Wheels for Life which uh, as some of you will know Two Wheels for Life is one of our chosen charities for our nine lessons of carols for curious people so here is today's cosmic shambles about Two Wheels for Life from Silverstone the chequered flag is out and Fabio Quattararo is the British Grand Prix winner. Alex Rins is back on the podium in second and Alicia Spargaro does hold on to take a brilliant first podium. So your relationship, I mean, it, so it starts, does it start with, you, with your dad's occupation working? Well, no, my, my grandfather on my mother's side was a motorcycle racer in the 19th the early 1900s. Um, in fact, I have a photo of him winning a race that apparently was the first race in Britain, which was a, a, a speed trial from Edinburgh to Bradford, which he won, apparently. And then my, my, my uncle, my mother's brother, uh, was also a motorcycle racer, uh, racing German NSUs just before the war. And, and my father was a motorcycle racer. And then... Um, in the next generation, my brother was a, mo- a very sort of well-known motorcycle racer, and and, and I raced as well. So uh, it's and and then I married a motorcycle racer um, as well. So it's uh, it, it's it's part of my you know DNA. But that is, I mean, that's almost the entire history of of of, of, of motorcycles, isn't it? Just it, that, it that is, is yeah, in terms it of is. from the beginning of motorcycling. And how do you see? Because obviously, with something like Two Wheels for Life, part of it is. I think it does give people a very different idea and image and the possibilities and what they can represent as well. Yeah. How do you feel generally, though, that's changed? If you look back and you, you know, look on a wall and look at some of your family history, yeah. how do you feel people's attitudes have changed? I think, that what, I think people really saw motorcycling, uh, certainly around the, between the wars, world wars and after that, as a way of just moving about to be to be able to get to work and 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 for people who couldn't afford cars and who had to be mobile in order to get work um, I think they saw that as a, a as a valuable resource and and then of course there were things like you know telegram boys out on the BSA bantams and so on so it was a fun thing but I think there was a point um, at which there was suddenly a class distinction, and I'm not sure if that was bet- uh, to do with mods and rockers and the you know mm. Brighton beaches and all that kind of stuff. What caused all this trouble yesterday? Boredom. On whose part? Well, on both. What happened? The do well, there was lots of things, you know. They started, you know. You know what rockers are like, don't you? Well, I don't. No, you tell me. <laughs> well, they. You know, they're motorbikes, they started bashing into the scooters and knocking our motors. Uh-huh. And what else happened? <laughs> so, we, st- you know, well, we, it was their fault as well as ours. Uh-huh. Or whether it was, it was simply because all of a sudden 
people be, some people began to get wealthier and so they could buy cars and there was some um, there was a status to, to that uh, and the, the motorcycle was then the preserve of the poorer people the working class people I, I'm not certain at what that what point that took place but I know also in the United States um, there was huge uh, fun around um, things like uh, flat tracks and, and all those board races that they used to do. So I know that there's a difference in terms of class distinction with motorcycles both here and in a, a difference between America and here. But I think here it has... It, I, I think when I started Riders for Health, in fact, one of the things I wanted to do was to show that Although motorcycles can be dangerous, as in the case of your poor grandfather losing his eye, uh, they also, and they can be huge fun, and there's incredible technological advance, advance in, in the way that, that those engines and, and uh, framework and cycle parts are developed. But I, I wanted to show that they're not just a toy, but they're a real tool, and they can really contribute to the health a broken a broken health system in Africa and I wanted to show that this is something that is a really vital part that fills a gap in the health system especially for rural communities in Africa so uh, you know it's it, it's a it it's a concern for me that it is still a class thing um but nevertheless, I feel that what we do does show that motorcycles have a real part to play in development and have a good, good, good story to tell. Well, because so that the beginning of 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 that story and of your realization of how they could be used. From what I've read, it was kind of you. You ended up just you saw images, or maybe you were actually there, of just lots of motorbikes that were in in disrepair not quite and and suddenly going hang on a minute the way that you can get around the way you can connect health because that's really what it's about wasn't it it was about the idea of going so much healthcare is inaccessible in 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 african some african nations and that's going and then you see a scrap heap and you go there's a connection between these two things that yeah and 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 what we saw was that in uh in uh communities maybe 20 or 30 miles from a from a clinic or a hospital or even a capital city 20 or 30 miles away there are women going getting to hospital in labor in in wheelbarrows there are children shivering with um with uh, um I mean that was incredible when I was reading about the idea of someone you know who's basically in labor in a wheelbarrow yeah and a, a poor husband pu- pushing this woman for six hours and she bleeds to death anyway. I mean, it, 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 what, what made me angry then and makes me angry now is that a hundred years after the development of the internal combustion engine, there are people dying because nobody knows how to operate them in those environments or to know how to do the supply chain for parts and to keep a vehicle running. And you just think, how can this actually be true when we're so developed here nobody could manage without a vehicle and 
the technology develops so quickly here people are now talking about oh well the answer to uh, pregnant women in Africa is is a drone or a mo mobile phone of course it isn't you know you can't you can't you know you can't vaccinate a child with a mobile phone or you know if you drop a lot of vaccine for children who's going to va vaccinate them you know a woman needs to see a person who knows what they're doing when she's in labor and so it it just it, it's frustrating that people, the UN governments and people who really understand the situation and know how, you know, they say, oh, great, we've got a new malaria drug. Oh, we've got, we might have a vaccine for HIV. Oh, how are we going to get it to people who really need it? And it's just so simple and so basic. And I often think it is connected to the issue that you raised, first of all, about the almost prejudice in a way about vehicles and logistics and very basic oily hands greasy hands thing as opposed to um, you know the development of a drug or you know some kind of um, you know a new new way of getting a vaccine into a person's arm and it's frustrating I find it frustrating I know that some people, when you said you can't be vaccinated with a mobile phone, of course the conspiracy theorists say you can with 4G, they send little robots through it, so that's going to happen. Um, but that, is, that, that frustration is, I mean, can you give us, in terms of, I, I know in, in some of the, well actually, before we get to that, I'm interested as well in the fact that you changed Wheels for Health and Two Wheels for Life and that you were very aware of the fact that you didn't want to look, at, is the right word to say almost like a kind of colonial intervention, that yeah. you wanted to make sure that it was very much about that nation yeah, and that absolutely. they owned it. And that yeah. seems a very important and often forgotten idea. Overlooked? Yeah. We When we started we in 1992, um, we really felt it was important for women and men to be trained to ride motorcycles, women and men to be trained to be mechanics and, and, and there to be no gender bias, which there's a very strong gender bias in, in the sort of automotive industry here and we didn't want that to be imported. And so um, we also felt that it was very important to be Africa-led because unless it is, you, you're, you end up with bringing in help and then everybody says, oh, well, actually, I don't really want to do that anymore or, um, you know, my, my husband or my wife wants me back at home now so I'm going to have to leave and then they take all the information and everything with them and it is that colonial in intervention where you say, roll up your sleeves, move over, guys, I'll sort this out for you, don't don't worry and that's not that's no way to have something deeply rooted and owned by that country and and it is a bigger struggle because um development over the over the century has it habitually had people going from uk france america wherever getting things set up and then and, and people see that as being something that uh, it's an intervention that can't be done without people from America or the UK. And we, we didn't want that. We wanted this to be deeply rooted and owned by the people, the nations of, uh, in, in which we were, were working. And, and we did that 30 years ago. And now it, it's interesting because 
uh, organizations are calling us and saying we're doing a decolonialization uh, exercise we wondered if you could give us any kind done it a long time ago uh, but <laughs> um but but it is interesting that that most of the programs the the four programs we have in in africa malawi the gambia nigeria and lesotho uh three of them are led by women one by a man and all from those those the continent uh, the countries in which they they are, uh, are based not all villages are accessible the roads are not good, but also not all villages have transports. They have donkey carts, they have wheelbarrows, people carrying their children, grown-up children, on their backs and walking for hours to get to the health facility. Imagine putting a, a woman in labor on a donkey cart or a wheelbarrow. There are some kind of disadvantages. Um, you need some sort of entity in in Britain, in our case, to do fundraising and profile raising and so on, and making sure that the African leadership is really on the global health stage and, and not, you know, because people are, aren't used to having the voice of Africa being the, the one that promotes what's happening. So, you know, to give give the, that leadership confidence but to say to people who are interested in an interview or talking to them about what they do to make sure that everyone's confident that the, that voice will come through strongly and that that's disappointing that that has to be almost but it has to be done and and and, and we're doing that and what about um in terms of with COVID, one of the things we are seeing a huge disparity in the accessibility uh, in, in different nations. So how in, in, in this last year and a half, and I know it's been very difficult as well in the last year and a half in terms of fundraising as well and all of these other yeah. things. So in fact, maybe we'll talk about that first of all. You know, how, how have you kept everything going when so many different supply lines, both of, of, of the physical and also in terms of uh, information, um, have been down? Yeah. What what one of the things that I found really interesting about this whole process about COVID is that um, because we've had less money to be able to use to be supportive, we've we've not we've we haven't been able to ship vehicles. One because the costs now of shipping anything from the UK is ex. Extraordinary. I mean, it's kind of suddenly rocketed. So we're, we're now setting up processes, procurement in those countries, which we haven't had to do before. So that's, that's one thing that's been um, interesting. But in terms of the fundraising part, it's been a real struggle. But there have been people who have, have really supported us over years, who've tried to give us continue to give us support even though in MotoGP of course we haven't been able to offer the experiences that we we normally give so our fundraising is down by by 75 percent I mean we're earning 25 percent of what we were uh, before but nevertheless the the 
proximity, the closeness, if you like, between the African programme directors and, and, and us has become very, um, I'd say, sort of conversational in a way that we're saying, look, we've got this little bit of money, how are we going to have the biggest impact with this? And working with, together with them, we're able to really come up with something that can kind of really maximise impact. And one of those things has been training more people. So we've done some cross-programme training, some uh, one of the top trainers from the Gambia, Gambian man, uh, Lamin Nickel, has gone from uh, the Gambia to be in, in Lesotho for, for six months to train our technicians and expand our technical workforce. So there's been a lot more cross-training during the COVID because they've been able to move about a bit more than we have. Uh, not now, they can't, they're really stuck. Um, so we've really tried to just... M I mean, we always try and make the money work hard, but we've had to try even harder and make sure that we can report to people on how much impact their money's had. But I have to say, it's difficult, and there are some things we would love to have done and we haven't been able to do. So what sort of things, are, in terms of in the field, what's going on in terms of dealing with COVID? How is Two Wheels for Life? What might be something that happens within a day? Yeah. Uh, the motorcycles have always been used for getting out to rural communities with health education, um, with vaccines, making sure that um, midwives are getting out, with the clinicians are able to get out. People are frightened. The only way they can get help is if health professionals uh, travel to them. They do not have information and they don't know how to protect their families. We make sure that doctors, nurses, health officers have the support they need to do their work. But during the COVID um, crisis, um, they've really kind of pivoted to doing contact tracing, to, to health workers have to be stationed in communities for much longer and to really service those health workers make sure they have what they need make sure they've got batteries for their phones make sure they've got um, enough PPEs they've got you know so really looking after the health workers so we've got people going back and forth on motorcycles and um, uh, and then we've also been able to show that um, that We've done a digital development to show that um, we've trained the, all the health workers to have um, handsets and to do uh, for barcodes for diagnosis. So we're picking up uh, samples for diagnosis, taking them back to health centres and making sure that's all digitised. You know, it takes a lot of time to get, a long time to get data from the field to the, actually the person who's going to enter it into the system. But also it takes a lot of work for that person to just to enter data, don't get to analyze the data. We can't make decisions because it's so difficult to get it all into the system so that we can be able to analyze. Uh, we've been collecting data in this conventional way for over 20 years, so going digital would change things, make life better for both the workers and also bring about improved health care for everybody. And one of the big effects of that has been that um, we've had 
offices with paper stacked up to the ceiling with all the reports. And now we're saving something like a thousand pounds in each program a month on paper because everything's digitized. And the people who were doing uh, digital entering, you know, com computer entering, data analysis, they're, a uh, they're able to data entering. They're now turned to doing data analysis, which means they can do program correction in real time and also they're much more highly skilled they're not just data enterers they're now data analysts so the combination we love the combination of the new technology of digital development to married to the old technology of just mobility and moving people about so we love that you know the two things going together it's a perfect marriage so um yeah, I, I think that COVID's taught us a lot. There were there were times when none of our staff had enough PPEs and it was hard to get that out to them. And and then some of our staff contracted uh, um, COVID. And then when they went into hospital, they didn't have any ventilators. So we had to ship ventilators out. So that when they went into hospital, they always had their own ventilator to take with them. So it's been it's been weird. But when you think that, Africa lives with a disease burden of, you know, bubonic plague is still there, um, leprosy is still there, leishmaniasis, all sorts of diseases that we haven't seen. And now on top of that, you know, they've got HIV, TB, and now on top of that, they've got COVID. But this is just another thing that's come along to, you know, challenge them. And it's just... Uh, Hi, Randy. Hello. Sorry. How are you I'm doing? It's warm for you. It's nice and warm. But, you know, I've, I've been working with Randy now since 1982. So how did that start then? My, my husband, Tom, um, was killed in 1979 in the, uh, the Northwest 200 in Ireland. And um, I, I actually said, although I've, I've spent my life at racetracks, I said, I'm never going back to one. And then his manager of the time, Jim Doyle, called me and said, would you do public relations for Randy? And I said, well, as long as I never have to go to a racetrack, I will. Well, what a stupid thing to say. Anyway, we started working together then, but he was, he was very young, Randy was very young. And whenever he landed in London, coming from San Francisco, I had to take him immediately to a Taco Bell in case he kind of, <laughs> in case he went to pieces. And today I friggin' passed the Taco Bell from Milton Keynes this way. And oh, did you? And there's this, there used to be this little chihuahua we used to do a commercial. And when I saw it, it was kind of like, zing, I saw the chihuahua. You know? But it was at eight in the morning, I couldn't stop there to eat. This is what I always like about these kind of interviews. You just don't, you, I wasn't expecting the chihuahua to come in so soon. <laughs> so that's great. The, uh, that was a, a, slightly excitement. I remember when I was like 18 and went to the US for the first time. And when you see the adverts, they used to seem, not so much now, but they used to seem so alien. Yeah. Like, wow. It's like going and looking at the cereals and going, these cereals contain marshmallows. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. the luckiest charms I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, um, and then when, when I actually lived here, uh, where, did, where did Alex and I live? Um, yes. Rickman's Rickman's, and Oh, that's the next town from where I was born. Yeah. So, there, so in, in Soho, they opened up a Taco Bell. Three, four times a week I'd drive in. It was an hour and a half to get in. An hour and a half to come back. But Taco Bell was good, man. <laughs> It's a pity because the Long Island Exchange, which you probably knew as the uh, the big bar, the fanciest bar in Rickmansworth. Yeah. yeah, the fanciest bar in Rickmansworth. Imagine how fancy that was. 
Um, I wanted to find out because Andrew's relationship with bikes almost seems like there's a nature nurture. It's almost genetic. Yeah. It's a, what about yours? When did, when, when did you realize this was your life? This is what you were? So, <laughs> if you want to go back to the beginning, I was born in 1959. The Beatles came to the United States around 62 or 63. They were on Ed Sullivan's show, so I'm three or four years old. Uh, I thought it was the coolest thing. I don't know if you ever heard of the Ed Sullivan show, yeah, yeah. but anybody who's anybody, the Hermit Hermits, the you know the the British bands that came over, everybody had to be on his show. And as you know, mom and pop television was the thing. I mean, you sat in front of the TV and you had popcorn and you watched the family things, and, you know, Happy Days and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So, uh, I I love music. And to this day, I love music. He's so a very good drummer. I wanted to be a Ringo star, and uh, so my parents bought me a set of drums, uh, Ludwig, and I think even back then they were like eight hundred dollars. And this is nineteen sixty-six, sixty-six or sixty-seven. So, which is a lot of money. And uh, my drum teacher. Uh, ended up being Tom Jones's dr Tom drummer for when Tom Jones had the uh, television show. And so I took lessons from eight years old till 12. And when I say 12 is because it's the first time I rode a motorcycle, it was about 11 and a half. And uh, it was a friend's motorcycle. And it's one of those things when it's two kids fighting over a little Honda 50 monkey bike. My dad knew it was time to try to get, get me something, but they could not afford the bike and the drums. So one of the things is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of kids that I look back now and, and could have done a lot more in school, but uh, there's a lot of things with kids who didn't like school and so on and so forth. And to me, music, learning music, because my father was very strict. I'm paying for drum lessons, you're gonna, you're gonna learn. Because every week I had to go. So, uh, you know, motorcycles took over. And the rapidness of motorcycles that took over was insane. Uh, so because that was the interesting thing. Talking with Andrew about the different meaning of motorcycles, kind of in the UK compared to America. Because in America, I think there's far more of that kind of iconography of, again, attached to, to myths of the old west, attached to you know more. I think even much more so than here, that idea of this is freedom. Um, and then I think of, I suppose around that time would have probably been Hunter S. Thompson's book on Hell's Angels. Would have, uh, yeah, come well, out and those so, so that, that is the absolute truth because, and this was one of the reasons why when I came over here, I, uh, motorcycling in my backyard had a bad name because of Hell's Angels. And to this day, you can see that the Hell's Angels do a lot of things for charity work and so on and so forth. They try to get a, a better name. But there were these rebel groups, but that's what the movies were, James Dean that whole thing that was an era the leather jackets that's where it all became you know it was a real what was a uh, what's the movie with the American flag on the gas tank and uh, uh, Easy Rider Easy, Easy Rider, Rider. you know uh, I'm, I'm like 12 or 13 or something like that when that movie came out which I didn't understand in any way I remember we were in a drive-in theater and when there was any sex scenes or whatever, my dad's going, oh, what is it? what's going on over there? <laughs> 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 so, but, but it was, it was again, uh, just a different outlook. And then when, uh, when I started 
there was racing going around and we had a thing called PAL, Police Athletic League. Police Athletic League had football, uh, our soccer year football, and American football, baseball, and they had, so they had Police Athletic League, so they had ballparks and things like that. Well, they built a motorcycle park around 10 minutes, 12 minutes from the house. San Jose Airport is still there and the road is still there. It's called Trimble Road. And right across the freeway of 101, again, 10 minutes from my house, is still the dirt field, except for they have uh, refueling tanks now for the airplanes on that side of the freeway. That's where I learned how to ride. Uh, my dad get off work at 2.30, and I'd go out and ride. So are you, I'm always fascinated where someone's mind is. In, you know, people now talk about flow state a lot. That's become the new way, isn't it? I'm that. But that point, you have such focus. I mean, does... does does everything else get sacrificed for that focus? So when you were drumming, was kind of like at school and things like that, it was like, well, drumming is the main thing. Drumming is the other things. And in the same way, when you start riding, is it like kind of, this is what I do. I will do the other things that are needed, but you have to a little bit, one blind It's a little out. bit more magical than that when you have pure talent. And I mean that. In the, I, I have a tear in my eyes and I'm saying this right now because it's the truth. When someone has natural talent, you don't think about it, you just do it. <clears throat> and it's the same thing with the music. My drummer cried, as I said, because he could play something and I could almost do 90% of it without looking at it. The thing that I need to do is learn how to read music and I didn't want to go through all that process. I said, I can do this and so on. So, the same with the motorcycles. And out on the racetrack, Randy Mamola continues to carve his way past the slower men. No problems at all for Mamola. He hasn't put a wheel wrong throughout the race. TA 125, it's a twin cylinder bike. Ron Grant was from New Zealand raced in the United States with all the old guy, Paul Smart and all those guys when they came to Daytona and so on. He, he taught me how to road race. I fell off the road race for one time and it was like I was in a bubble, this bubble at, at Sears Point. I won my first eight road races on it against professional racers and I was 14. Never road raced in my life. And it was just, the, again, the diversity of my, it wasn't my father knew how to race. My father knew how to mechanic, science. My dad played around with drag racing. He was a rebel, rode a Harley Davidson and so on. I have two still from uh, 1952 and a 1946 Harley uh, that I bought when I was in my 20s. And uh, when all this stuff started to happen, it just became natural. When it starts to become complicated is because you start to become older and you have to think more of the process of not getting injured and how, how to do those things. But believe me, the, you visualize things so quickly and so easily. And that's why I always w was a clown. And you can clown having fun. I, I mean, having fun and making people laugh was just as important as standing on a podium to me for whatever reason. And to this day, that's still... So I'm, I'm attracted to people and I love to talk and as you can hear me, you're not going to get a word in, 
on this interview because there's so much inside of me about passion, about what I did, what I do, and where I'm going. Thinking of you as this little slight guy, and you're 14, and what is everyone else, you know, all of those other races? That, that sense of, of know, meaning yeah. that you must so, get. I grew but up. I, I have to tell you that Randy is actually a really gifted... I mean, I've, I don't know anybody. I know a lot of motorcycle racers. I've never met anybody who's as gifted all round as Randy. And he has a real feel for people. When we first started working together, I used to take him to visit children in hospital to do things. It, he was just so overwhelmed with how they were suffering that we we actually had to stop but when he was in there talking to them he was just so gifted at talking to little kids it's interesting because that that intensity in your eyes when you were telling the story reminds me immediately of when I talked to astronauts and someone like there's a guy called Rusty Schweikart who was Apollo 9 and you start talking about when you just do you know what the great thing is you have hair like Rusty Schweikart as well so it could be some uh on to Wheels for Health and Two Wheels for Life. At what point did that become part of your... When, when did you and Andrea kind of get that sense of, of how that would develop? Okay. As I said, uh, with my father, what they taught me was never to be... think you're better than so on. I do this thing with the kids. It's all over the newspaper. Great, great things and so on. But I'm a kid, you know, and I forget about it. I didn't even go there anymore and so on. When I came here... And I'm racing in the World Championship in, uh, I don't know exact if it was 84, 85, or 86. I think maybe 86. So, because on 86, I wore Save the Children on my leathers. Uh, uh, we were having an argument with, or a discrepancy with the FIM and uh, the championship. We meaning the top riders. There was eight of us that were in factory bikes. And there were 30 to 35 riders in the championship in the, for the 500 class. And, you know, to win, uh, the Grand Prix were five grand U.S. dollars and something like that. And, you know, we're in Aston, there's 200,000 people. And so somebody's making a lot of money. And, yes, the factory guys were getting paid and so on, but it was $200 to finish in 30th place. So if you finish 30th in the championship, you were making five grand or something. I look back and at tennis, uh, you know, tennis to this day is 350, 400,000 if you're 100 or something like that. So, and I know times have changed from 45 years, 50 years or whatever, but uh, we fought for that because I said, this is ridiculous. These people can't even afford the tire spark plugs or anything to go to the next race. I mean, we were living in caravans like when you thought about the British Championship, you know, the Silverstones back there in the late uh, 70s, things like that. So in the 80s, it was the same. And uh, we fought, we asked for, we wanted a 100% uh, raise for everybody. And the FIM did uh, uh, some configuration and, and they said, we're gonna give you 40%, uh, but the 40% will go from eighth position back because there were fa- we were the factory riders. When I had that opportunity, I said, I'm gonna take my, t- my 20%, I'll take 20% and I'll give away 20% when it was my turn, our turn to get it and I'll give it to a charity. 
So I said to Andrea, find me a worldwide charity that's for children. She and Mary and her, her husband now uh, looked at everything and, and we found Princess Anne is the president of Save the Children. So uh, I donated, I made 100,000 US dollars that year from the 20% of the money that I finished, not my contract money and all that, and I gave 20. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's 20 grand. And this is for the, the charity, and that was great. But the very next year, I had friends that, uh, you know, professional photographers and things, shoot photographs of me and stuff like that because I rode for Kajiva, and uh, we made posters, sold, I made nearly 150,000. And uh, it cost us a dollar for each one. We were selling them for five. So we took one dollar out to pay for them. And the four went to that. It was roughly another hundred, over a hundred grand, I know. When that money went to Princess Anne, she saw that this money was going towards her. And, uh, I, and, and so she said, you guys have to go to Africa. And in 86, 80, 86, 87, uh, I, I, I was racing for Kenny. I was in second in the world championship. Kenny and I got a, into a, a bit of an argument. I lost the ride. I had a ride for Kajiva in 88. And uh, uh, I go to Kajiva. Uh, they've never been on the podium. I put them on a podium, their first ever podium and so on. They were over the moon. In third place in the race, the incredible Randy Mamola. Remember, he fought his way through the field from 22nd position on the first corner, and he's now third. Just the dash to the line, and Wayne Gardner wins the Belgian Grand Prix. In second place, it's Eddie Lawson. And in third place, with the biggest cheer of all, and certainly the biggest wheelie of them all, it's Randy Mamola. So... At that stage, Princess Anne had seen what we, we were doing, saw that the motorcycle industry itself are very close to the family, and so on. So she said, we're using this money, but we would like you to go to Somalia, and we'd like you to go to Kenya. So it was uh, Barry and I who went in the end of 1988. I just know that she knew that I was such a giving person. In terms of somebody just doing this, just doing it, and she knew that if I got to Africa, I'd be hooked. Because if you've ever gone to Africa and ever seen anything in the remote areas of what goes on in life, you're saying the same question that I said to you before, why me? Why isn't that me? Why am I the given or not? And I know now why I am. I'm an entertainer. I'm a person that's supposed to drive these things when I look up above most people <coughs> most people in <coughs> the sport I'm sorry, I'm sorry there are a few people in the sport and those are the ones that kind of dig yeah you would have won the championship if you didn't play it around so much you would have won this or you know yeah you could have been a world champion I'm a world championship buddy in more ways than one because the greatest thing I've ever done is with Barry and Andrea to create such a charity with Princess Anne, with Save the Children. But again, 
the most incredible thing is that Princess Anne comes to a race, a couple of races, Donington, Grand Prix, and Acid. She came to Holland to have the princess come. Some of the British that are going to be listening to this might hear, ah, you know, it's a royal family on this. Fairy tale to me when, it, when you think of a queen and a king and a prince and so on and so forth. She's a princess to me. And she's probably, she's one of those ones that's an activist and horse riding and all those kind of things. And I remember first, when I first met her at the Alessandra Palace, gave her this check. She said, oh, I don't like, I don't like motorcycles. She said, don't, don't, whatever you do, don't tell my mom. Like, I'm going to see her mom. <laughs> and she says, I ride horses, not a problem. But motorcycles, they're really scary. And I said, I'm the exact opposite. Every time I get on a horse and I kick it, it don't want to go. But if you eventually get it to go to the beach, when it turns around and wants to go back, it runs all the way back home. And she goes, that's because you got bad horses, man. I can give you a horse, and when you tell it to go, it's going to go, and so on. So this was, for me, I'm talking to a, a lady. Uh, she's a human, and, uh, but her stature and who she is and what she is and what she's called for and what she has to do and the life that they have to present and so on, I understand all that. But it was so unique to meet someone. And, you know, I've been able to go to Buckingham Palace for a tea party. You know, it was it was uh, just after uh, uh, Freddie Mercury passed away. Uh, and um, what's his name? The guitarist. Brian May. Brian May was in at the Buckingham House. It was all everyone to do with charity work and so on. My wife and I, Andrea Berry, got to go and stuff like that. Don't ask me the year, but uh, we got to go, and and it was uh, it was an amazing thing. I'm here. I'm in Buckingham Palace, you know. And I, where did I start? San Jose, police, athletically, football, soccer, baseball, racing a motorcycle, driving for a go kart company, to meeting a princess. See, Howard, just the final thing I ask you, which is. How important do you think, I mean, it seems from a very early age, as you said, you realised there were certain things which you had no idea why you could do them so well, but you knew that you couldn't waste them and you had to. And it seems that sometimes people might look at something like an industry like this and imagine that it will be very easy, especially if you're very good, to forget about everyone else, become very, we live in a quite an individualistic kind of time, to allow your ego to not make all of those connections. That you, and have you found at times the realization of like I have these connections will stop that ego running wild they will stop that kind of individualism that can sometimes trample on others for the life of me I did I, I could never understand why we don't get, donate more money out of this sport because music still is such a big part of my life because when it was we are the world the those videos the first people when there's a devastation in it are music musicians put together Live Aid, this, that, and the other thing, and they do it like that. I come from the Hells Angel era type things, and I thought, here's a great way to show that a motorcycle can save lives and so on. So, And this part helped me to keep grounded. Uh, Mark, Mark Marquez, insane motorcycle racer, great champion, so bloody fast. Devastating win. 
for Marc Marquez as he crushes everyone in Germany. This man has been in a class of his own, a league of his own. He's going to make it 10 out of 10 here at the Saxon Ring. Unrivaled domination. Another planet. This guy is riding out of this world right now. Well, he's bossed it, hasn't he? Marc right. Marquez. I was really hoping this morning when we woke up that somebody might be able to throw in a challenge here. So we weren't in for anything like that. But hey, sometimes you just have to sit back and admire the genius that is uh, Marquez. That's 10 on the trot then. But when Mark won his third or fourth championship and I had to do TV and so on and so forth, if you had Mark here right now and you said, what did Randy Mamola ever tell you? You'd say, keep your feet on your ground, never change. That's what my father told me, never change. And um, I guess I'm, I'm just different in, in that way uh, with that. So if you go look through the generations of what's going on, and now there's a generation of the Quattraros and the, the Instagrammers and the, these, these kind of kids that are racing that have all that social media with them. <laughs> hey, you gotta do this, and here's your, you gotta do that, you gotta do this. Okay, back to the other one. I'm not doing that. Can't we get out of that? Can't we do? And there, so there was variations. There's, there's a generation 46, private plane, this, you know, for a long time. So, no, can't do it, gotta go home. You know, there's all different variations, but this new wave group really understands the camaraderie that you need with the fans and, and, and so on. So it does, in a long ways, keep them, keep them grounded. But that was, Randy was the first one to do that. He had a really magical way of getting people to, the people on the, other side of the Sorry. fence to kind of communicate with them a different kind of language the only two people i know who've ever done it are randy and valentino Val valley is i mean he's been he's been he's 43 42 and i've been in this paddock 42 years so the funny thing is i've got picture, pictures of me beating graziano and his graziano dad, yeah. his dad talk about a hell's angel not a hell's angel but looked like I don't want to say the word yabo, but you know, long yeah. beard and hair, like a hippie, and he was a school teacher. And I'm, I'm a racing, real, actually a, a real, real, real intellectual. No, he's, no, he's in the same. Yeah. When I used to race the match races in 78, 79, mm. and you'd go to freaking Olden Park, and they were burning the tires, and they had soot all over their face, they'd come out and, they, and you'd think, oh my God, they're gonna attack me, and they'd go, Mr. Mamola, could I have a signature? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and so so it's the same with 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 Valley's dad. I mean, so when I look at Valley and stuff like that, I, you know, uh, but um, uh, the unique thing is I shared a s stage with him to sell memorabilia. We made a fortune with this guy. Him standing on stage, he was so magical and so demanding to the people in terms of how we could get this money out of their pockets. Okay, big thank you. Thank you. Give it eight hundred pounds away, get a bit seven fifty. And it was it, it was always so he would, it always seemed like there was always going to be an issue. You know, he comes a little, sometimes they come a little late, but 
all in all, what we've done with the charity, how we've done Day of Champions, how it's all worked out with the fan, it, wouldn't, it doesn't work anywhere else. Slightly the same in some areas of the States when we did it in Indianapolis and things, you know, the, the camaraderie of that, I don't know, the similar British, American, English language, uh, Australians try to do things really well and so on and so forth with that. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we've come a long way with it. Thank you very much for listening. And Two Wheels for Life was one of the charities we supported at last year's 2021 Compendium of Reason, Robin and Brian's show at the Royal Albert Hall. And if you'd like to find out more about the work that Two Wheels for Life are doing, you can go to twowheelsforlife.org. That's two spelt, T-W-O, not the number two. And if you would like to support us at Cosmic Shambles Network so we can keep making podcasts and documentaries like this and doing the big shows uh, for charity and things like that, you can subscribe at Patreon, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. You get lots of extra goodies for subscribing as well, including we'll be putting up an extended version of our interview with Randy Mamola for this podcast that you've just listened to. In the meantime, subscribe to the Science Shambles podcast, subscribe to the Book Shambles podcast, rate, like, review on Apple Podcasts, five stars, all that business. Back soon with another new episode of Science Shambles. Check out CosmicShambles.com for all the details or follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles. Take care, stay safe, see you soon. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. 